Hello and welcome to the Historians Magazine podcast. My name is Chris. Uh, today I'm joined by historian, author and podcaster Luke Ailey. Luke, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Thank you for having me on. It's, uh, yeah, it's good to, good to be here, good to talk about what, well, what we're talking about, really. Absolutely, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. So today we are going to be talking all about medieval saints, saints' lives and their kind of importance and impact after their death, which is usually with saints when they become the most uh, important. But I think before we go any further, I think it's really important to say congratulations, Luke, oh. on your PhD. Thank you very um, much. You're going to be start- starting that soon? It'll be starting started? officially in October, but there is plenty to uh, be doing in the meantime, unfortunately. So no rest for the wicked on that. It's always, it always seems to be the way with uh, with with the that kind of stuff mm. it's uh yeah it never never really ends does it but i'm assuming this is something that you're very personally proud and excited oh, yeah, of and things yeah. like that I, I, yeah i'm very extremely excited it's going to be a fantastic project i did a bit of it for my master's so it's a continuation of that um so i'm fairly used to the content that i'm going to be looking at so yeah it should be fine awesome so speaking of the content uh, I've already mentioned briefly we're talking about medieval saints and things like that, but do you want to give us just a quick rundown on what your PhD is going to be about, what you're kind of expecting to come across? Uh, yeah, yeah. so essentially it's, it's a fascinating one. Essentially there's these, uh, in the Canterbury archives, there is a set of folios uh, from a manuscript, which are the financial accounts of Canterbury uh, from the 13th century. Essentially, these were discovered by a student of uh, David Knowles in the 40s um, called R.A.L. Smith, a fantastic um, historian who produced a work that I heavily used um, in my master's. However, tragically, they died uh, before they could really do anything with it and manuscripts were then lost um, until a digitization project at Canterbury took place where they were rediscovered and digitized. And there's about, gosh, there's about 300 or so folios. So thankfully my advisor used to work at Canterbury is a specialist in um, Thomas Beckett. So they knew of um, these manuscripts and was like, listen, this would be a really amazing project, never been looked at before. So I did 40 of the folios for um, my master's and I'm doing the remaining for the PhD. And essentially, within these manuscripts are uh, expenses, incomes um, f- from a variety of different kind of industries and and um, things, really, from estates to, to industries, like I say, commerce, um, farming, agriculture, but also from shrines, um, donations, and... Um, the expenses allow us to also see who was there and how long they were in office for. It was people like the treasurers, the chamberlains, the you know the sacrists. So you can really map out in really a lot of detail what was going on, who were they interacting with, and also seeing how events happening around, um, you know, such as the Barons' War, you know, with King John, the exile of the monks, but also the translation ceremonies. How these events impact the finances of the cathedral so that is believe it or not the short answer to that question (laughs) that was a very good answer very nice and succinct I think it's it's a really interesting topic like you said because it makes you ask questions like you said about the finances but also those finances then give you more questions Mm. 
you know, why are we spending so much on this at this time? What's happening around, like, you know, you mentioned King John and the Barons War and Magna Carta and things like that. At the end of the day, that was about church rights at its at its core. So Canterbury is one of the most important kind of religious centres in England at the time as it is today. Yeah. That's going to give you a lot, I'm hoping anyway for you, mm. it's going to give you a lot of insight into other events around that. So I'm assuming you came across some pretty interesting financial records in the work you've already done for your master's. Do you want to tell me a little bit about some of the things you've already found? Mm, yeah, no, definitely. Um, so there's this whole kind of economic kind of political power play going on within um, within the cathedral. We see very basic um, kind of re- recordings of the financials of Canterbury in about 1098, uh, 1198 rather. Um, and then by the end of the 13th century, we're seeing kind of a really highly complex system being created. Now, one of the things that we see is the treasurers in kind of making this really complex system are really trying to limit the potential power of the office or the officials called the obedientaries um, of the cathedral. Reason being is because obviously at the end of the day, it's a cathedral, not a business. So they, you know, with money comes power and, and, the potential to be swayed from God. So we see that, you know, the Chamberlain, for instance, gets the most money. So he was in charge of kind of really the, almost everything really, in a sense, in the kind of industrial sense, he was in charge of making sure that everyone played their role. Um, And then we see the sacrist getting not that much money, despite, you know, Thomas Beckett and a few other um, altars being, you know, so um, integral to the community. But we see the seller who was in charge of food also getting not as much. You think food costs would be so high, but we see the Chamberlain really making their role as prominent as they can to be able to get as much money as they can. So they usually get the highest incomes and the highest expenses. And you see a bit of this jostle of power play, but a uh, a consistency across the years, um, really. And another thing that we found, which was, you know, really in the... kind of the intrinsic side of it. Using paleography, we were able to see that the handwriting of these manuscripts changed on a regular basis, on a two-year basis, and then across a period of 10 years. So what we were able to surmise from this was that the treasurers in that office, because usually the officials um, kind of rotated on a set basis again to limit the power that they had um so these treasurers would hold office for two years uh, for 10 years and within that they would switch around recording the finances on a two-year basis um and would keep switching then f- five times so it's all it's all these little things that you can pick out that then allow you to really construct this whole story um which is absolutely amazing so hopefully we'll see more of that really yeah, it sounds really cool. I mean, from my point of view, obviously, like you, I'm I'm obsessed with medieval history. So this just sounds fantastic. But what kind of things are you expecting to find as you go further? Are you expecting to see much of the same? Or, you know, is there something in, in the back of your mind that you're expecting to just appear out of the woodwork? Yeah, it's difficult to know really what what's to come because when doing doing the one that I did for the masters the set of manuscripts this happened during the just after the exile of the monk monk monks jesus um so basically with king john he exiles the monks when you know the whole thing with uh, the pope goes down 
and we don't get any financial records, apart from when they then pick up in the early um, 1210s. Essentially, you then see the monks getting back up to speed. So that was kind of the main focus of the masters, was seeing how they were kind of recovering after. They were claiming back their estates and getting back up and running. And we're seeing how, you know, the, the translation of Thomas Beckett really plays into that because they get so much money from that that helps pretty much bail them out of bankruptcy. So the hope is to basically see how then they survive, how they maintain this kind of economic prowess because by the 1230s the finances are starting to level out to kind of pre-exile um kind of values so you know it took them a good 20 years to get back up and running but so you know the hope is that we'll see how kind of it goes but obviously on the horizon we have simon de montfort and various wars with um wales and scotland um that, that are about to come and so we'll, we shall see how these will play into the events, really, whether they'll be able to flourish even more or whether, you know, they eventually kind of collapse as people begin to question the the age of saints. Yeah, it's 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 very, it must be an exciting time knowing that you are virtually the first person mm. in, what, 800 years to see <laughs> Pretty much. and digest some of these very, very important records. I mean, I would absolutely love to um, sit down with Thomas Beckett and chat mm. about his his thoughts on certain things but yeah that sounds sounds very very exciting hopefully we'll we'll have you back on to discuss the um the finding and findings of your of your work soon um speaking of thomas beckett and saints the phd isn't the only thing you're doing <laughs> you're currently in the process of because you're very good Ugh, tell me about um, it <laughs> <laughs> you're currently in the process of writing writing a new book hmm. that is um all about saints um again in saints lives do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah it's um a project where i've bit enough more than i can chew um <laughs> no it's it's a fantastic it's been a fantastic journey so far essentially the idea is that we look at history from a kind of you know this kind of great man through kings through heroes warriors whatever it may be even now we're starting to see through women as well however you know by realigning our kind of perspective around religion we can really see a really interesting narrative be presented one that's kind of filled with you know paranoia and and drama and kind of the peaks and troughs of christianity because a lot of people may you know we see it as this kind of institution but actually there was many times throughout history where christianity was really threatened to kind of cease in existence really and so the idea is is that the book aims to look at the contemporary events of each century in a kind of chronological way um through um each century has a saint um and at least one anyways um so for instance looking at the fall of the roman empire through saint augustine and seeing how he was paranoid about what was going on we can really have an insight into what people were thinking and feeling at this time because although they are saints during their life uh, they were normal people um you know obviously with well in the case of saint augustine he was from a degree of no of kind of noble aristocratic blood but it's better than seeing it through the eyes of you know the emperor um so you can really get a feel for the tensions the kind of influences and the way that christianity develops and molds as each century passes that's a really cool again a really cool lens to kind of look at medieval history mm -hmm. like you said um do you have a favorite 
say like you've obviously been doing your research and things like that do you have one that really sticks out that you would love to maybe write a book about just then uh, that's a you know that's a really tricky one because um it seems to my favorite state seems to change uh every chapter that passes i mean saint augustine despite being uh kind of a very mainstream saint is you know just a fantastic one his confessions that give you a real idea of his mindset how he you know how tragic it was when his mother dies, when his he has to depart from his lover, um, and also then how he adopts Christianity and it changes his life. But I would also say that then looking at, um, you know, someone like St. Cuthbert, for instance, is very interesting because you see the kind of the instances of sexism and misogyny because Cuthbert didn't allow... Um, the women into the monastery and this is upheld after after um his death at durham um we see the queen of england asking to come to durham and being refused because she is a woman and so it's really difficult to kind of pinpoint a specific saint because there are just so many fantastic ones out there really um, i mean that's definitely a good problem to have i would say <laughs> yeah. especially if you're yeah. writing writing a book on them you want them to be um you want them to be interested um a question that i wanted to ask that you know i think is a, an important one is how how important were saints and the veneration of these saints to everyday people on the street because obviously when you know as we've mentioned when when you read history or write history let's take thomas beckett you see you know his murder and then him becoming a martyr and then a saint you can read that as, yeah, every single person in England was talking about Thomas Beckett. But realistically, boots on the ground, how was it for, you know, regular everyday people? Mm. It's interesting. There's, so saints, um, there's there's kind of a golden age of monasticism, really, which is kind of from the, the turn of the millennia. Saints did exist before that. We have plenty of saints from, you know, the third century, even, you know, all the way up to the, the 11th Um you know, obviously included in the book, but um, these kind of a lot of these saints aren't actually venerated properly in the kind of ways that we think about today until much later on. Um, so you have, for instance, Gregory the Great, who is a saint, um, and monks did follow him after his death and kind of worship him, but it wasn't really kind of the idea that we think of a saint comes in at the turn of the millennia, and so what was it like if you were kind of a, a, a peasant or, or just a person living in England? Well, you would probably have a local saint um, and many, um, you know, there's many wherever you're, you're from in East Anglia here, we have William of Norwich at the time of, uh, of kind of the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Um, you've also got um, obviously the famous St. Edmund, Barry St. Edmunds, who contended to be um, a national saint um, alongside Cuthbert, who was called the Saint of the North, um, and a few other contenders as well. So you would kind of, um, it, it's tricky because we see that um, in the case of Thomas Beckett, you have pilgrims coming in from across the world, really. He was a really famous, he, he put sainthood on the map in that sense. But you have at Bury St. Edmunds, you have it a lot more localised. You might see some coming from various other places in England, but it was very much so localised to your county, to your region, um, to your duchy. 
um, that you'd kind of venerate locally, but the saints are everywhere. And it was kind of an almost a, a degree of legitimacy to have a saint in your cathedral, which is why we see it, for instance, William of Norwich, the kind of the idea that a cathedral may even invent a saint to gather people in, really. Yeah, it sounds like, and I'm going to reduce sainthood, and I'm sorry to, I'm going to reduce sainthood to uh, a sports analogy here, but it sounds like it's a bit like a Hall of Fame kind of oh, thing. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. If you are the top of your game, you're getting into the Hall of Fame, mm. i.e. you're going to be made a saint. Is that is that something people aspired to do, do you think? Or was it, if you? I guess if you're truly a saint, that you don't want that kind of veneration <laughs> you want to be. Um, but obviously that's a, that's a philosophical argument <laughs> yeah. for another day, but... Is it something people were aware of in their lives that there was a chance that, you know, I might end up after my death being remembered quite fondly? Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's actually a really fantastic, uh, I can't quite remember. Oh, it's uh, Thomas of Aquinas, I think. No, it's not. Isidore of Seville, who on their deathbed, uh, it's noted that they could see the monks around them eyeing up their body parts to turn into relics. So you could kind of... Um, yeah, so there was different types of saints. You had martyrs who became saints, so someone who died for their faith, such as um, Edmund, uh, who died fighting um, Viking invaders, the, the great heathen army in East Anglia. So you could argue, well, he didn't necessarily know he was going to become a saint. It just kind of popped up out of nowhere. Um, but the kind of in terms of bishops and, and popes that become saints, usually that is as kind of the idea was a role model, someone who someone would become a saint if they were yeah a role model of Christianity, something that people could point towards, which is why the likes of, say, Gregory the Great or, or St. Augustine became saints. Um, they themselves, there isn't really any evidence that I've yet found that, that would point towards someone being like, you know what, I really want to become a saint. But... I guess it would almost be synonymous if you wanted to be a role model of Christianity that that the idea was to become a saint, really. But you wouldn't enjoy the glory until after you're dead. So, you know, the best you could do is perhaps Pope, but no one really wanted to be Pope. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Yeah, you don't actually get any of the benefits no. of sainthood until you can't benefit from being a saint. Uh, I also love the fact that you see, yeah, you use the Pope as like, that's the next yeah, best yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> that's uh yeah that's that's good um yeah again like i said very very cool very interesting lens to look medieval history one thing you did mention that we definitely have to talk about is relics mm. famously bits of people get saved <laughs> and become venerated as fingers and shin bones and stuff like that is that something that you either in your PhD hope to find information on or in your book is that something that you're going to kind of discuss a little bit yeah about? I mean you see kind of um in the PhD I haven't yet found anything specifically about relics themselves I have you you see altars that people worship so there's um well to be fair there is the cross they they do have a piece of the true cross that you see but actually strangely enough it doesn't actually make too much money um believe it or not thomas beckett despite the the cross being from jesus outwins uh the, the the true cross there um but but no relics relics are fascinating things because um i think someone said if you could if you gathered up all of the pieces of the true cross that people claim to be part from it 
um, that, that you'd be able to build about 12 crosses. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they're sprinkled throughout, but they are extremely powerful. We see in, again, with Barry St. Edmunds, simony being committed to the, the, the crime of making money out of um, relics, um, where um, Archdeacon Herman and um, Bishop Baldwin are asking people for money to, to whether it be a peasant or a lord, um, to come down into the crypt and touch the blood-stained cloak of um, of Saint Edmund that has arrow holes in it, apparently. Um, and the author of um, the life of of Archdeacon Herman does. Uh, say with some humor that um within two weeks he falls ill and dies which is divine punishment for his simony but yeah so that i hope that 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 will in itself be because relics are such a big factor of saints and the way that cathedrals attempt to capitalize on them, um so that will in itself be kind of a a chapter hopefully of of the book as well the kind of the ways that people appropriated their saints uh, throughout that time yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to reading that um, that chapter because, yeah, for those that don't know about the kind of medieval obsession, let's call mm. it, with with cutting people up and and finding coincidentally finding bits of true cross and you know the spear that pierced Jesus' side mm. during the First Crusade and um, it was big business. Oh yes, absolutely monumental business and like you said about the true cross everybody and their mother seem to have a bit of the true cross <laughs> which i guess maybe nobody really wanted to talk about yeah. it's being being legitimate because then it 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 kind of brings the whole thing down but yeah it's um mm. it's a it's a very interesting part of, oh, the, definitely. of the church story it does as well and just quickly on on that one um it i just came to like there's many relics that all the, themselves don't take off in popularity there's a story from saint beckett where someone in a vision uh is told to to go to this spot this stone slab which apparently thomas beckett slept on and um and from sleeping there overnight, he's then cured of his illness, and he tries to spread the word about this. I don't know what it would be, really, just this bit of floor that that everyone should now go to, but it doesn't take off. It's funny you say that because it's something I've always wondered about. Going, if you could go back in history, and would you just be able to convince people of things? Yeah, you know, if it, it, it's. I think it's. Um, obviously, well, likelihood we'll never know the answer to this question, but even in their own time when there was obviously no internet and, and things like that, there was no way to kind of fact check if Thomas mm. Beckett did sleep on this stone. It's funny that, you, you know, even then people were saying, nah, come on, mate, yeah. I, 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 I don't think that's, that's legit. But again, I think that's one of the common misconceptions about the medieval period is that people were just incredibly stupid mm. and blindly followed the Catholic church wherever it would go. But you've obviously, you've made several references to the, to the, the waning influence of, the Catholic Church. Do you think sometimes that saints were used to kind of combat that? Um, you know, if there's a particular period of time where you know the church is lacking in um, popularity, were, were they were they kind of wheeled out and gone? Look, we've got Thomas Beckett's, you know, knees. Have a look. Yeah, you definitely see that. I mean, especially from um, a financial standpoint. I mean, you see that, for instance, in Norwich, where um, kind of one of the biggest expenses um 
for a cathedral is wax. Um, you can spend hundreds and hundreds of pounds, which probably equates to hundreds of thousands now on wax. And so we see um, in financial, in times of financial difficulty, um, cathedrals exploiting their their saints um, for kind of financial gain. Um, but no, it's definitely an interesting one. I hoped I hope to see that when. I haven't quite got there yet, um, but when I research my chapter on kind of when, you know, we're kind of getting towards the Reformation where it's arguably the end of saints because, you know, the the Protestants come in as like, no, we should kind of have a iconoclastic type way, uh, no idols, no statues, no saints. You know, how does that kind of jostle with with the idea of, of saints themselves, really? Um, so it's it's an interesting one. Um, and also, as well, in the Black Death, you have obviously tons of people killed, died. Um, and, you know, quite often when, you know, there's maybe a defeat in battle, when people die, you know, whatever kind of destructive force may come, you know, even we see in the, in the Byzantium when a volcano goes off, they see this obviously as a sign of God. And so that's when kind of saints are used as tools that can kind of come in and kind of solve help solve the problem, really, essentially. So, yeah, they're definitely used as a tool wielded by by the church. Um, like, you, like you said, I think it's interesting that we don't view medieval history specifically through a religious lens mm. that often. For me, from my point of view, we see religion as a massive part of medieval history, but it's kind of a, it's like this overarching thing that's always there that, so no, it doesn't really seem to get that involved, yeah. but you know, literally, you look under the surface slightly, and it's 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 there from a political, a socio-economical point of view. Obviously, your whole PhD is based around mm. around that, which is cool. But yeah, I think yeah, I think people should be very excited to to read your book because um, it sounds like a good one. Speaking of the church, we've we've spent a lot of time today talking about the church yeah. and its importance. What's one thing you wish people knew about the medieval church or one kind of misconception okay. that, you know, I, I have my misconceptions, I'm mm. sure, about the medieval church. But yeah, what, what's one thing that you'd like to kind of set the record straight on? I think people would be surprised at how uh, diverse it was. A lot of people, uh, even myself kind of going into it, it was even from chapter two. So we're looking at the age of Justinian in the kind of the, you know, we're looking at the kind of the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, we're looking primarily the sixth. Um, the church is scattered. You know, although we call it Christianity, it's anything but, you know, it's you've got monophysites, Chalcedonians, anti-Chalcedonians, Paulicians, you know, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so, you know, we see especially with the emperors and their kind of how they, between the East and West Roman Empire, um, a real kind of pursuit to unify Christianity, which was what Gregory the Great hoped to achieve from continuing the policy of um, Justinian. So he brings um, Christianity to England. Um, but we just see within this time such a diverse range of varieties of Christianity. And they all come down to this idea of, the divinity of Christ. Is Christ human? Is he God? How much are we in between that? And so it's a wide spectrum and people are so divided on it. And it's things that, you know, we kind of see Christianity 
now as maybe Catholicism, you've got Protestantism, you know, maybe a few others. Um, but yeah, in those days, there was so many different types and everyone was conflicting each other. There was so much tension between them. Um, and I think that in itself that hopefully you'll see through the book is just one of the most surprising things is that, you know, as much as Christianity was trying to contend with Islam, uh, which was rapidly rising on their frontiers, it was also having troubles at home as well. So yeah, definitely that. Yeah, that, that that's a very, very good point. And I think in a sense, we can still see today that the, the, the effects on mm. the medieval church and that internal struggle with, um, we have orthodoxy, we have, Catholicism and then obviously later Protestantism, yeah. but obviously we have the um the Great Schism in the 1050s, which split Christianity virtually down down mm. the geographical middle, didn't it? Um but yeah, it's I think in, in my eye, I, I see this the first sort of like you said, the third to kind of the eighth century-ish is this kind of really strange, still quite Roman mm. toga wearing Christianity yeah. that isn't at all related to the, um, you know, the order of the garter um, religion that we have later. But I guess at that point, it's still very, very new. And only recently, you know, it was stopped being, not stopped being outlawed, not <laughs> outlawed by, by, by Rome. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting topic as a, from kind of like, um, from point A to, to point Z, where mm. we are now, it's 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 full of really really important history. And yeah, if people want more, I guess chat to Luke. He's your guy. Um, so just to wrap up, I guess quickly, we will ask you the same questions we always ask everyone, which are just a little bit of fun more than anything. The first one is: if you could go back to any place, time in history, where would you go? What would you see? Who would you meet, and why? That is uh, an interesting one. I I have two answers. I have two answers for this. The first is that just um, I would love to go back to the times of, say, the 11th or 12th century kind of England slash France to see kind of the bustling roads of, with pilgrims on it the um, and, and kind of the, the melting pot, the bustling melting pot of kind of the towns and cities, the urban centres, cathedrals, you know, see some of these shrines and, and actually hear some of these stories in person. Um, but if not, then it would have to be, I think, one of the most epic uh, kind of images in history is, is Alexios standing at the kind of gates of Constantinople after hearing Pope Urban's call for the crusade and seeing thousands and thousands of soldiers coming towards the gates from the West, kind of a unified Christianity. At, at this point, which is also another thing that I talk about in the book, is, is kind of, you know, with that division of Christianity, it's not until this kind of idea of the first crusade that, that Christianity really unites. And so to be able to witness these kind of, armies this divided europe coming together i think would just be an absolute sight to behold yeah i think that's a great answer i mean i can't believe we've i think we've both said the word crusade once yeah. each i can't believe it's not come up more <laughs> in this episode because it is a absolutely huge part mm. of medieval history real you know medieval religious history but i think that's one for another episode maybe uh maybe later <laughs> in the next few weeks but yeah Two two great answers. I would I would totally agree. Mm. Um, I don't think I'm going to I'm going to disagree with anyone I'm going to speak to <laughs> in the next few weeks because 
<laughs> I just, yeah, I'm probably, yeah, it's medieval history. So, I yeah. um, and kind of the, another question, the opposite of that question, if you could bring anyone from any period of history to 2023, who would it be? Do you think they'd have a positive impact? Do you think they could learn something from, from today? Mm. Yeah. Who, who would it be? That would be a very interesting one. The first, uh, the one that comes to mind first is um, Abbot Sujaves of Saint-Denis in France. He spent his whole life crafting very carefully the legacy of the Capetians. The Capetians come to power um, pretty much as almost usurpers of, of kind of the Carolingians. And so they've kind of this, there's this whole fight for legitimacy. And, and Louis the Fat, who kind of is is very good friends with Sujay he's the king at the time and his father didn't go on crusade and carries a lot of shame he was issued an edict by the pope um you know so forth and so he, he kind of spends his whole life and and even after his life crafting this this legacy of traditions and etc and so i think it'd be brilliant to to have him for instance, to come to the future and see kind of the legacy of, of France and how some of the things that he implemented, such as the iconic symbol of the fleur-de-lis, which he kind of came to use and popularised, is still then used today because I think it would bring him a lot of a lot of joy there. Um, but aside from that, oh, I think... Well, I think another one would be Gregory the Great. He, um, again, he, you know, his whole policy was about trying to unite Christianity, and I think it'd be interesting to see that how the Christianity of the sixth century that he was very into, which is kind of you know about poverty and and but also unity, um, how that has changed since then. What would what would and it's the same question for for Islam and other religions, what would the people of, of those times where it was kind of first created think of it now? Would they see it as a completely different religion? In many ways, I'd say so. I think those are two great answers. Again, I think for two very different reasons. I think the thought of Abbot Sujer seeing the importance mm. on the world stage of, of France and probably seeing how England lost the eventual 100 years mm. war would probably make him <laughs> yeah. feel quite good. But yeah, I think, yeah. Awesome answers. I expected um, <laughs> nothing less. I mean, I've had a great time. Oh, I definitely. really, really, really enjoyed chatting you t- chatting to you today, um, and I'm very, very grateful for you making time for this because you clearly are very, very busy. <laughs> um, so I will give you an opportunity to share any work you've got coming up. Obviously, you've got your own podcast. Mm. Um, you've got your own social handles and everything like that. So I'm going to go on mute, and you can talk <laughs> for as long as you want about anything you've got coming up. Here we go. So uh, I guess the main thing is obviously the podcast. So uh, the Daily Medieval podcast, where you can find it on YouTube, you can find it on Audible and Spotify, on everywhere and anywhere, it seems. Um, I have videos about medieval history, about some of the stuff that I'm doing, um, but also some fantastic interviews with historians, authors, archaeologists, even uh, scuba divers who do archaeology um you know so a really wide range of people other than that uh you can find me on twitter at uh, luke daily 99 you can also please follow me on instagram because at the moment it's just kind of weird bots that i keep getting of these uh you know oh yeah i won't go into detail but um <laughs> and then aside from that you can also you can go on my website uh 
um, medievallatin.com where you can find my first book that can teach you all about how to kind of a beginner's guide to medieval Latin. So it's called Medieval Latin, a beginner's self-taught guide um, that you can find also on Amazon as well. And so I think that should be it. I wrote them down. Yes, I've done them all. Awesome. I like (laughs) it. Nice and prepared. I have my pitch as well. I'm always ready to give when people give me the tip. So yeah, it's nice. I don't want to forget anything. (laughs) You've you've got to do it. In this day and age, you've got to plug your socials as much as possible. Um, But yeah, absolutely cannot recommend following Luke's um, social handles enough. If you want to see him get hit in the head um, (laughs) by other chaps with swords, um, I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not going to give any content. Um, Yeah, give Luke a follow because he's a wonderful historian. Thank Uh, you. But yeah, thanks again, mate. It has been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. It's been brilliant. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for listening.